Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to start out uh, looking at uh, the call of Jesus to the disciples at the very, uh, back at the very beginning of his ministry when he called them into service. Let me ask you this question as you're turning in your, bu- in your Bibles. What, uh, what comes to mind when you think about a politician? Don't answer that out loud, please. There are children present. What comes to mind when you think about a politician? What, do you, what comes to mind when you think of a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter or whoever? I got to finish that one off. What, what comes to mind when you think of the, the, the generation we know as the millennials? What do you think of when you think of my generation, the Gen Xers, the one who broke the system? Actually, it's the baby boomer's fault. What about the builder's generation? Tom Brokaw, I think it was, called them the great generation. Okay, so what do you think about when you hear Dallas Cowboys? Don't answer. I hate to even say this one because I know we got some Missouri and Kansas folk in the room. What about the Chiefs? All right. I could go down the list. Longhorns, Aggies, Bears. Oh, my. We'll stop. The word Christian, what comes to mind? You probably have some stereotypes. You should do yourself a favor and ask that somewhere outside of the church. We got a guy in the church that'll tell you what he thought of Christians before God encountered him one day and changed his heart toward Christ. It's a very interesting conversation to hear You might say something like this, Christians are people like me. Well, okay, then what description does that give you? What would our culture say about that word? What depends on what kind of run-in they had with a Christian at some point. Was that Christian the one with the little ichthus fish on the back of their car telling them they're number one because they cut them off in traffic? Depends. What kind of run-in have they had? Culture has different impressions of what a Christian is or whether or not they would identify as one because many in our culture maybe have never set foot in church, but because somewhere along the way they're American and to be American means you're supposed to be Christian. And so, I mean, that's what some of the world thinks of Western culture. Well, that term Christian was first used as we looked back in Acts chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago at Antioch. But that wasn't the church describing themselves. That was Antioch, the culture, the people, the lost people of Antioch describing the church. They called themselves that. They didn't, the church didn't call themselves that. The, the, the people of Antioch called them Christians. And it's, it was used in a rather derogatory term, in a manner. Kind of touched on this briefly, maybe in that sermon over Acts chapter 11, but just briefly to review, that term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, so in all of Scripture. 
But the word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament to describe the church. It's an accurate description of who we are. And it is, when we get into scripture, a compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. So we go back to the time this morning in Matthew chapter four where Jesus called his first disciples in his earthly ministry. And I'll pick up in verse 18, and you can be seated. You've been standing for a while, so here we go. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I've heard that story my whole life, always in conjunction with a sermon on evangelism. Two brothers, or several brothers, going about their day, their daily routine of fishing, trying to make a living, trying to provide food for their community, for a profit, of course. And here comes Jesus walking along, seemingly out of nowhere. He walks up to them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. At least that's how the fun little Christian cartoons make it or something, you know. And then they drop everything and they turn and walk away. Like, what? I want that Jedi mind trick. Like, what did he do to convince them so quickly? You go a little further into scripture, and we think by John chapter 1, he had actually met these guys already, and they at least knew of him at this point by this encounter in Matthew. But this, what's happening is kind of behind the scenes because Jesus is, is known as a rabbi. Like most people, a lot of people will come to him and say, rabbi this, rabbi that. He's a teacher, right? And so he's calling disciples. And that was a normal thing in their day that there would be rabbis and that there were students or disciples. And so if you go back into history and look just a little bit, you'll find that Hebrew boys went to school around the age of five, sometimes six, and they began learning the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah, even Leviticus, okay? Whew, I made it through Leviticus this year in my reading, but we're through it now. We're into Numbers. But even Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five. By age, uh, let's see, by age 10, they would have all of those things memorized. Can you believe that? Well, they didn't have screens to distract them and everything else. But by age 10, all of the young boys knew the law, and that's where the separation began. The best students went on to study the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of them, if they didn't make the cut, they would return home to work in their family business. By age 17, if you wanted to go on and make a career out of religious studies, I mean, because to be a religious ruler back then was, was a sought-after occupation. That's where the power was, all right? So at age 17, your next step then to go on to the next stage would be to find a rabbi that you admired, someone you looked up to, and you would apply to become one of his disciples, one of his students. It's kind of, yeah, most of the time it'd be like you go sit at his feet and he'd take notice and he'd start testing you. So when you found one, you'd go, you'd go to him and that, that going to him is, is your request to learn. But that rabbi would examine and test with questions and put you through a series of those tests to see if you were worthy enough to be his disciple. You had to pass his test. 
And so the rabbis would choose the smartest, the most talented boys to be their disciples. Actually, well, I guess by age 17, they're young men. But another reason the rabbis were so picky and so concerned about who they would choose is they were choosing someone whom they believed could be just like them. So they're, even beyond knowledge, they're looking maybe even into personality types, characteristics, mannerisms. But all of those things would be taught, not just to know what they know, but to do what they did. For several years, the young disciples would then follow their rabbi, imitating in every way, because the goal of a disciple was to be like the rabbi. Now here comes Jesus, coming up to these fishermen, considered to be a rabbi, a rabbi with authority. He knew the scriptures. At age 12, he was teaching the rabbis and the religious authorities in the temple. They were already questioning him, and he was giving them the right answers plus some, because he had that kind of insight already by age 12. Now, these men are fishing. If you go to the whole picture of all of his disciples, you got fishermen, you got one who's like an IRS agent, right? Matthew. You got some other winners in the group, Judas. Um, you got two brothers, the Sons of Thunder. Most think the Sons of Thunder because they argued with each other all the time. They had, they had temper problems. All right? They're in other occupations, not following a rabbi, which means they didn't make the cut, which means what? They're on the B team. They're not on the A team. They're the B team. They're the JV, if you will. No offense to those of you spent any time on the JV team and that's all you ever made was the JV team, that's okay. But when you look at state championships, you don't ever see a JV team winning a state championship. It's only varsity. These guys were on JV. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. Look at verse 18. Walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So here comes Jesus, this new teacher, this new rabbi. He chooses Peter. He chooses Andrew, his brother. The fact that they're fishing shows you that they were on the JV, that they were on the B team. It's not the first time Jesus had met them. If you go to John chapter 1, I'm not going to spend any time there because we're going to cover this, uh, that passage in a couple of weeks. But if you go to John chapter 1, you will see there the first time that they meet. But when Jesus chose his squad to begin building his church, he chose what some would call the JV or the B team. So naturally, they're going to follow him. This rabbi has chosen us. This rabbi has come and asked us to follow him. Guys without a whole lot of potential in their day, guys without a whole lot of personal standing or power to follow him, to become like him, or rather to know God like he knew God, and to do what he did and eventually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Check out what John MacArthur said about this. He said this, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens, and the powerful were in Rome. And Jesus chose fishermen. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean. When the Holy Spirit came on these disciples after Jesus had ascended back into heaven and there 
They are indwelt and filled with the Spirit of God, and they were able to do things that only God could have made happen. People with talent, people with ability, that bring that to the altar and say, here's, here's my best for you, Lord, gets in the way because they never learn to lean on his power. But Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent without him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, God, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses those who say yes. Those who say yes, Lord. So these guys are not chosen based on their standing, their society, their <laughs> occupation, their religious hierarchy, personality, their charisma. He called out the willing. Even the sons of thunder with their temper problems, which you kind of see come out to play when they're arguing about who's going to sit on the right hand and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. Yet here is Jesus. And the question for us, church, is this, are we willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to surrender control of your life to Christ Jesus? Because God wants to use his church. He wants to use you in your work. He wants to use you in your family, in your neighborhood. He doesn't need your personality. He doesn't need your abilities. He only needs you available. That's what he needs. He needs us to say, yes, Lord. We walk into church or approach Jesus sometimes on a Sunday morning and we got that bright red neon sign blinking. No vacancy, no vacancy, stay out. I'm just here to check a box. When in reality, we need to kick out all the sinful tenants that have taken up residence in our hearts and make room for the calling of Jesus upon our life. So from time to time, as we look into scripture, we find these moments where Jesus is moving his disciples forward. And it's, again, not about our abilities for Jesus, but rather it is about availability. He didn't choose you to follow Christ because you'd make a great dad or a great mother or a great husband or wife or a great deacon or a great business owner or a great teacher or a great coach or a great employee or because you'd be wise with money or you'd vote the right way. He chose you because he knew you'd be willing, that you'd be a willing tool and instrument that he could work through. Ultimately, he chose you because you were dead in your sin and your trespasses, and he, it's God's desire to make you alive with Christ and in Christ. He is going to make something in you. He has work for you to do, because in Christ we are created for good works which God has prepared beforehand so that we'd walk in them. If you go look at Acts chapter 2, here's Peter and Matthew 4, a simple fisherman. By Acts chapter 2, some three years later, Peter is now standing preaching the gospel. Having in between all of that denied knowing Christ, having anything to do with Jesus, restored by Jesus, now proclaiming the gospel. Just one of the disciples that day preaching and proclaiming the gospel. 
The man or woman of God who has totally surrendered to Jesus that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is more powerful and effective than an army of speechwriters for the president of the United States, who apparently is the greatest communicator in the White House today. It is his power at work in you. How available are you? How available are we? Let me include myself in that. Because he still doesn't choose the best. He still chooses those who will say yes. Yes, Lord. We move on in verse 19 to say this, that he chose us, not we him. Look at verse 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Remember, if you're not at the best in class, you've, as you applied to that rabbi, he would have looked over you or looked beside you or looked around you and looked past you. But if you were the best in class and that rabbi liked what he saw and he liked your answers, then he, chose, he would choose you back. There's a lot of confidence in that selection process. So if you were struggling in that day, in, in one of the days of trying to memorize the rest of the Old Testament and learn the books of the law and all the things that come with it and the prophets and all those things, you could look back on that day when that rabbi that you were sitting under selected you and remember, wait a minute, he saw something in me and he chose me. He came seeking. Jesus came seeking these men when they weren't even looking. We don't come to Jesus telling him what we think is best for our lives and what we can do for him. When we tell God what we can do for him, we remain in control of our future and our own plans. But when you totally surrender to Jesus, there's no more telling Jesus what you're going to do or what you can do or what you're good at. It's about service and surrender. And Jesus reminded his disciples of that in John 15, 16. Listen, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So if you're in Christ, Ephesians 1 says that this is the way that God chose to save people and make us his disciples. He chose us in Christ. He chose that it would happen in Christ. And that he chose these men to walk with him through ministry for three years. And then on the day of Pentecost to be the ones that would preach the gospel. And then as the gospel was preached and thousands came to Christ that day, that they would be disciple makers. And then as persecution came, the church would spread out all over the world, even today. We still know that there are people groups who have not ever heard the gospel. They're not engaged. They're not reached. So it is still on us today that the church is called to surrender. The church is chosen. He has a plan and a purpose for his church, and that is to be disciple makers, that he will pursue his purposes in the church. Friends, if you are in Christ and you're in the church and you are a disciple of Jesus, he is pursuing that purpose in you. He is calling you to that purpose today. We're not promised a comfortable life. We're not promised just because we follow Jesus, everything's going to work out. My family knows that full well over the last two weeks. But we get a curveball. And life smacks you down and you feel like you're up against the ropes with nowhere to turn. You remember his promise. You remember his promise that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? He will make you into disciple maker. He will call you and he will see it to completion. The work that he started in you in Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. 
How do we know that's true? Because 1 John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's going to see it through. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. However many days we have, we walk in those works. What is our primary calling as a church? Our primary calling is to do what exactly Jesus said here. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our primary calling is to be with him. To say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will be with you. He said, follow me. He didn't tell them where they were going. He didn't tell them how long they would be gone. If they'd, would they have gone if they ultimately knew where it would take them? For all but one lost their life to persecution. The other died of old age. But in that old age, he was isolated on an island called Patmos because of a gospel witness. He didn't tell them what assignment he had for them. That primary call was not to do something, but to be like him, to become like him. And in order to become like him, friend, you have to know him. To know him, you have to know his word. You've got to soak in every word that comes from the mouth of God. We have multiple outlets for that. Obviously, we have a Sunday morning service. We have prayer gathering, first Tuesday of March. We have life groups. We have D groups. Hey, we have a life group that meets right after this service, about 1030, right out there. If you want to know where to go, find somebody. Find me, find Deanne, find Sean. They're right over here to my left. We can escort you that way. We have life groups. D groups. We have special study groups in our men's Bible study, a men's group that meets on Thursday evenings. Our women's uh, ministry has a, a Bible study that meets right now on Sunday night. Those things happen. Students, we have declaration. By God's grace, we'll have a kids minister soon uh, uh, that's going to help us build a Wednesday night or a midweek program for our children so they can be discipled other than just on a Sunday morning. We have a podcast. Did you know we have a podcast? It's just me preaching again. But if you miss something, there you go. If you're into that kind of stuff, don't worry. I take out all the bad things and just leave the good stuff. I get to edit it now, so you know what. But listen, we got books everywhere, books you got to be careful with because there's no substitute for the Word of God. But we have it. And in order to be like him, we have to spend time with him. And if you're really serious about being his disciple, which you should be because he calls us to be, then you'll take advantage of all of these times. Find a group. If we don't have a group, come find us. We'll try to figure it out and start praying that God will deliver and send us somebody to lead that group. But you've got to get his word in your heart until it dominates your thinking, until it begins changing our behavior because Christ is at work in us. Change the heart, change the life. It's not the other way around. Paul wrote to the Philippians, whatever is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know where all that list is found? In the word of God. You'll never know more of Jesus than you know of his word. It's not going to happen. You got to get into the word. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Get in the word of God. To follow him, church, we also have to leave all. Look at verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh-oh, here comes that. that. You know, we're good up until this point. Verse 22, it says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now you've crossed the line. 
Discipleship is a total surrender to Christ. Can, can Christ use you where you are? Absolutely, he desires to. But it's emphasized in all four gospels that discipleship is a total surrender to Christ. Mark and Matthew have a very similar point here. John, uh, Luke 5 says that when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. We identify these two things. Actually, J.D. Greer helped, uh, helped me figure that out, pointing it out uh, as I studied uh, what he had to say about this passage. He said there's two significant things in our life. One is the boat, which is our career. The way we take care of ourselves. That's how Peter and Andrew and, uh, and uh, John and, and James were taking care of themselves. They were fishermen. That's how they took care of the family. Right? That's our career. The second one is that little mention of their father, Zebedee. Our family, our most significant relationships. We love to give Jesus a, a tithe of our schedule, 10%, and we'll keep the other 90% for ourselves. But that's not what Jesus wants our whole life. He wants all of our life. So to follow Jesus, we have to let him have control, let him take charge, let him be Lord of our life. All of it. All of it. You know, it could happen that God would call us someday. I'm not saying this is my vision. I'm just saying it could happen because I know other churches that have done this, that God would call us to plant a church somewhere else and that he would raise up people of Coastal Oaks Church to completely transplant your life and move. It happened at Northeast Houston Baptist Church. They've planted three churches like that, one all the way in Denver, Colorado. They raised up a church planting pastor. He and his family moved. They raised up families that were willing to look for job transfers, and they hightailed it to Denver, Colorado to plant a church. A church willing to give up members and attenders to plant another church? It can happen. It can happen that you think, ah, whoo, made it to retirement, and yet then God calls you to mission service corps to go spend some of your retirement years serving him on the mission field, to go through the International Mission Board, serve two, three, four, five, however long of a stint overseas helping to reach unreached people groups, helping to engage the lost. Listen, don't limit God with your I don't want to's or I can'ts. It didn't work well for Israel. It won't work well for the church. That's why yes, Lord, is so important. The willing. In your business, God will not call you to cut corners. He will call you to be a graceful and merciful boss, to honor Jesus as if you're working for him and not working for man. Jesus calls, meaning that everything else falls away. And the call is going to look different for each one of us, but the principle is still true. Everything we hold back from God is going to hamper the quality of our life of following Jesus and keep us from realizing the kingdom fruit that he has called us to bear which we can only bear if we're abiding in him. Which leads me to the final stop this morning. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. I wish it said catchers of men. You fishermen know what I'm talking about. They call it fishing, not catching, because sometimes you go out and you get skunked. But it's not our job to make people respond. It's our job to be faithful to share. He does the work of response. He does the heart work. We just do the faithful sharing of the gospel.
You remember the Great Commission last week. Those were our marching orders, and they still are. It is an essential part of being a disciple. It's not, all, it's not something just a few of us do, but it's something each one of us is called to do. And the fruit is the marker. He never said how much fruit. He just said you'll bear fruit. If we abide in him, we'll bear fruit. I'm reminded of the parable of the talents, right? One, one servant got five, one servant got two, one servant got one. The one that had five, the servant that had five, took that five, got five more. Master, here's 10. The servant that got two, took that two, got two more, worked for two more. Master, here's four. The servant that had one, he was lazy and thought he knew his master as well as the others, thought him to be harsh and cruel and mean. And so for safekeeping, he just buried his in the ground. Didn't do anything with it. Master came back and said, I knew you to be harsh and cruel and mean. And well, I was afraid. Here, one. He was lazy and wicked and got cast out. It doesn't matter if you got five or two or one. My father, Jesus said, is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you're following Jesus, then the glory of God is your primary concern. And the heartbeat of Coastal Oaks Church going forward, we've got to have his glory as our primary concern. Everything we do, it cannot be for show. It cannot be for performance. What you see on the stage with the choir or the praise team, they're not up here to perform for you. Now, some of them may say that, but they're wrong. If you hear them say that, tell me. We'll go have words at our next practice and make them do some push-ups. <laughs> but it's not for show. This is for the glory of God. This is so we worship him for all that he deserves. The church is God's method. We are his tool. And we want to become more like Jesus. I want you to become more like Jesus this year. And disciple making is simply teaching someone how to follow Jesus. Just teach them how to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we come to the ask this morning. And I'm going to ask you to identify your one. Who is the one person God is going to lay on your heart or is laying on your heart to share these words that you would become a fisher of men, that you share the words of the gospel with? Could you imagine what it would look like if every one of us here this morning asked God, God, give me one person I could bring to Jesus. If our life groups made it their goal to reach one person for Jesus, each one reach one, we wouldn't have enough space. Praise God, we wouldn't have enough space. You winter Texans that won't be with us forever, we wish you were because we love you dearly and you help us, you, you raise our, you lift our spirits with your presence. But if you took this back where you're going, or maybe your church has already been through this kind of this theme, praise God, take it back with you. Go reach the one where you are. We ask Jesus to identify, help us identify who our one is. God, give me one person to bring to Jesus. When you look in the Gospel of John, I love the Gospel of John. I think of the four, it's my favorite. It's because I've preached through it, so I know it better than the other three. But you see this progress in Jesus' ministry. 
In John 1, he's asked, where are you going by these very disciples here? And he says, come and see. In John chapter 12, he shifted from come and see to I'm going to go and die. And then in chapter 20, he shifts from I'm going to go and die to now it's your turn to go tell. That's where we are today. Some of you are stuck in stage one. Where are you going, Jesus? Well, you got to come and die to yourself so that you can live in Christ. That's stage two. Stage three is go and tell. I want you to trust Jesus and move forward into stage two and stage three. This morning, if you're here and you're ready to follow Jesus, you're ready to trust him for salvation and be his disciple, you can pray this morning and I would invite you to come down and let me pray with you. But you could pray something like this in your, wherever you go, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to follow and become your disciple. You pray that from the heart. I am ready to follow and become your disciple. Every part of my life, Jesus, I surrender to you. All of it's yours. I trust, receive your gift of forgiveness for my sins. I turn away from that sin. It's all yours, Jesus. I am yours. You are my Lord. If you've already made that decision, then you need to go to stage two or three, which is go and tell. And this morning, I want you to pray. Ask God this morning, God, show me the one. Tell me the one. And you begin this 30-day prayer time of praying for him or her to come to Jesus. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of